This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Gil has been left by a woman he believed loved him, or at least desired his companionship. In a profound act of grief and vulnerability, he decides to walk from New York City to Arizona. He is a man of near limitless wealth and privilege, and he settles into a home on an incredibly fecund site of natural beauty. His new neighbors have moved into a house with great glass walls that offer up a view of the family's lives, loves, and troubles. Thus begins Lydia Millet's wondrous new novel, Dinosaurs. After Lydia's prophetic and apocalyptic climate novel, A Children's Bible, the quiet and steady beauty of dinosaurs is a new kind of shocking. In the style that has defined her more than a dozen previous books, Dinosaurs puts perhaps the greatest question of the age of humans to Gill as an unlikely prophet for virtue. Does goodness mean being family for strangers? Does it involve giving to those who have wounded you most grievously? Is it a measured in charity? Or is it best understood as a man in night vision goggles trying to protect the hawks with whom he shares a plot of land? Lydia asks to what lengths a man will go to seek goodness in all aspects of his life, only to turn that question on its head, to probe whether humankind can be virtuous if it is not sacrificing to and for nature and a dying planet. A climate novel tucked inside a beautiful domestic narrative about loneliness and connection. Dinosaurs pans out from the finite vision of a single person's existence to look with ferocity at the epic scale of planetary life. 
Lydia asks if, like the dinosaurs, we are not meant to carry on, at least not in our present form. What will we leave behind for the birds who follow us? Lydia Millet has won many awards for her fiction, including the Penn Center Award and the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and she was finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Love in Infant Monkeys, finalist for the National Book Critic Circles Award for Magnificence, and as well for the National Book Award for a Children's Bible. It is an honor to welcome Lydia Millet to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm very happy to have you. And this is really a stunning novel. I want to just start with a question about about privilege. Almost any era I find is a good era for trolling the rich in pop culture. But this era of savage inequalities has produced some legendary takedowns of privilege, including succession on the small screen and an absolute slew of contemporary novels. But you've done something harder here. You've written a book about a good man of enormous privilege. Can you tell us how you arrived at the idea of a man with everything who struggles to understand his place in the world? Well, first, I have to admit that I have definitely put in my time participating in takedowns um, <laughs> of rich, uh, white, heterosexual men. Many, many of my books have featured such characters and some of them in, in sort of starring roles. But I also really like sometimes to just step away from the kind of easy uh, satirical ridicule that that can involve and this book is more of a character study kind of took me back to a book i wrote when i was quite a bit younger when i was around 30 i wrote this book called my happy life that was also similarly a character study uh, and had to do with someone who had nothing and had been terribly treated in her life sort of was oblivious to all that and continued to have this sort of candide like um you know this sort of like innocence of mm. of character and of social perspective that was you know that was in many ways her downfall because she was she was so innocent any anyway with Bill, with with Gil I I wanted to kind of uh, go back into a, a good just a, a kind of a kind of a purely good character it's not that not that Gil doesn't have foibles and flaws and surely he does um but i wanted to kind of take a break from first of all from a really plotty book um which i had done a couple of before this and um from a large cast of characters you know i wanted to sort of zero in on this quiet interiority of this of this relatively gentle person who kind of, as you say, had everything on paper or should have, should have had everything, but really felt bereft and alone um, as, as though he had very little. So sort of a bookend to the, to the, um, to the protagonist of My Happy Life, but similarly open-hearted. So the conceit of the novel is that Gil lives next to a glass house into which he can watch the lives of the family members that live there. This might, in another writer's hands, be the start of a horror story, voyeurism, obsession, jealousy, stalking. Um, but you eschew these expected things entirely. 
when Gil does watch the family, it's not wholly different from how he watches the birds in his backyard. He feels mostly affection for them. They are a good, if complicated, family. They hurt one another, but their love is always present. Did you have to restrain yourself a little bit from wanting to put Gil and Artis and Ted and their children in an adversarial relationship? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, I never... I've been told that there's some sense early in the book of tension or possible ominous event looming over the proceedings, but I never, For sure. <laughs> <laughs> I never um, contemplated that while I was writing this, I did want there to be a sense of expectation. And um, so that kind of narrative tension, but I was, and I have done things that are chilling or eerie before I did a, uh, a sort of darkish psychological book called Sweet Lamb of Heaven, where there really is this sort of underlying bubbling darkness, for example. But in this, I I only wanted there to be a sense of sort of pregnancy or um, uh, the imminence of some connection. And I think that, um, I think, yeah, there was never a way where this could have been a horror show for me. <laughs> but it was it was intended as um, you know to some degree a meditation on voyeurism and a small meditation. It's obviously not devoted to that, but hmm. just sort of the disappearance of the disappearance of sort of the criminality and strangeness and threat of voyeurism in our culture now that it is defined by what we used to call voyeurism. You know now that. We're all on display for each other all the time and mm. focused on enacting that display of ourselves and spectating other people. It's almost as though voyeurism has no subtext in sort of in the mainstream. It's such a it's such a sort of first principle of our daily lives now that we watch each other. And so mm. this 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 house that kind of opens up like a dollhouse next to Gill is really just a sort of literal, a literal sort of picture of that of the ways in which we just have become constant spectators of other human beings and constant um performers of ourselves yeah and that and that explains perhaps why the family is not I mean, they're not terribly upset by the fact that they can be seen. And perhaps it's, as you say, that everything about our digital lives now prepares us to be watched. At first, when I was writing this story, I thought, could, could it, because I'm not someone who wishes to be living in a glass house myself. <laughs> I thought, can this even, how marginal is, is this sort of indifference in real life, you know, outside the curated spaces of, of social media, say? Um, and then actually when I was, I was staying in a hotel a few days ago in New York and right out, this was in, this was in Brooklyn actually. And right outside the window was an entire apartment building where all the walls were glass and mm. all the screens were up. Almost all of them were up. Uh, uh, the great majority were up and you could really just see exactly into the very same sort of open plan that I described in this novel, except that it was on a slightly smaller scale because these were Brooklyn apartments and not not sort of Scottsdale mansions or whatever. But mm -hmm. really you could see right into 
dozens of apartments and they were all, it was all sort of laid out there. And so clearly it's not that rare for people not to mind being seen proceeding in their daily lives, you know? Yeah, you already had a you already had an archetype for it, even if you didn't realize it. Yeah. There at at first blush, Dinosaurs appears to be a domestic novel set almost entirely in the spaces of two enormous houses on a plot of land in Arizona. But it is most certainly a novel of planetary collapse, only seen through small scale changes during the the length of a single man's life. We sense that the planet is tr in trouble in the novel, but there are not the cataclysmic floods that we encounter in a children's Bible, for example. Why did you want to have a small scale attention to the planet this time around? Well, it's um, it has to do with the tone and the voice of this particular book in part, which is very different from the tone of a children's Bible. And, you know, I don't really sort of like to repeat myself in successive books tonally because I think I need like the way you need your mood to change maybe between one day and the mm. next you want to go to sleep <laughs> so you can you go to sleep so you can wake up fresh and start a different day i i so this had a you know this has this sort of warm tone and it really is about that kind of line between that sort of membrane that exists between the personal and the sort of communal or the social the, the sort of the, the line between what we can do in our just in our individual small lives and the omnipresence of the world beyond that and the kind of paralysis we often feel in the face of the, the massive, the enormity of information that we receive from that outside world. So it's really about that kind of very thin wall that we can't, that we often feel we can't cross into into the social, into the, into the world of action on a vast stage, into change, you know, and and momentum, and um, you know, for that to, to sort of establish that kind of sense of a delicate membrane, it, it needed to be a book that wasn't full of tumultuous hmm. event, sort of writ large. I'm really glad that you named its tone for me as warm, because now that you say it, that that feels entirely right to me. I felt warmed by it. And it was interesting because there are parts in the novel where you where either there are upsetting things happening or you feel that underneath this this warmth, there might be ready to be a a kind of terrible, uh, you know, emotionally rending thing that's going to happen, and and yet the the warmth in many ways persists even through those those difficult moments. Did you find that there was a particular like language play that you were working with that allowed you to keep that that warmth coming through it? You know, I think the good question whether that this is a you know whether this is a matter of sort of sentence or more a matter of of voice. I mean, I think there there is an aspect to this that is kind of pared down, um, you know, sort of shorter sentences, for example, than I sometimes write. Mm. And um, maybe it's less adjectival at times. But I think that can also, that could also go in the direction of coldness. I don't think that necessarily um, is like a predictor of warmth that, can, mm. you know, in fact, it can, you know, this sort of a a sort of textual minimalism can can be very chilling at times. I think it probably has more to do with um, just making up a character whose whose instincts are toward love 
and mm. um, and affection, even though he feels sort of a, a great solitude historically in his life. He he is always tending toward affection and appreciation, you know. And so maybe maybe it's more about the voice of this character and being able to sort of install yourself as a reader in that character, and less about something like the structure of of sentences. Hmm, that's really nicely said. Do you feel like, from from your perspective of your own work, that there was something about Gill walking almost the whole of the country that sets him on this trajectory to explore how his life could be meaningful through good things and being good to others? Yeah, you know, I thought maybe... Um, so my boyfriend did a long walk right before he moved out um, to Arizona to be with me. And it wasn't this walk, it was the Appalachian Trail. It was the the whole of that. That's, that's trail, a long is, one. <laughs> and it's long. It's long. It's it's also several months. And that was part of what, what I was uh, capturing here. But briefly, it's just this kaleidoscopic sort of reference. Because the thing about walking for long distances is, you know, it's extremely boring. <laughs> Even if you have sort of <laughs> epic landscapes, uh, if you're by yourself, you know, there's a certain, and it can, can be meditative, it can be a number of different things. But it most certainly is often also boring, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think there was something in, for me in this story, I wanted to make a reference to his having d sort of accomplished two things with this walk, one of which was to like get more comfortable with solitude because he was in this state of grief or loss before that. And um, this character, Gil, and, and the walk was a way of, as, as walks sometimes are, of sort of also, I don't really like this verb in this context, but like processing, <laughs> processing various um, <laughs> emotions or events or whatever. Uh, so, so walking is this forward motion that literally is in itself. I mean, it's just very literally a vector forward, but also you leave behind the state that existed before or the stationariness maybe that existed before. Um, and then at the same time, I wanted to have this or needed to have this character have done something that that cost him something because he is quite he's quite disturbed and irritated in his life by his his inability to feel like he's contributing to the world beyond himself. And mm. so to do that, to do that walk, he had to he had to give up his time and 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 you know when you have as much money as a person like Gil has nothing nothing ever requires sacrifice really i mean there's mm. there's no cost nothing has a cost if you have infinite money right so you never have it's as though you don't have to pay for anything because paying for things is always a question of trade-offs and you know sacrificing one thing for another it's a, it's a, it's this constant calculation of value uh, right it, when when you don't have enough money for everything but because he's always had abundant well not always but like as an adult always had limitless funds he's never had to give up anything for anything and so this walk is a way of giving the only thing that truly has value like exchange value to him which is his time hmm I really like that. There's several key moments in which Gil feels a deep kinship with birds. At one point, he sits still watching a hawk. And this is quoting you. As long as he sat quietly, she'd stay, making small jerky movements with her head, looking around. Sometimes she bent her head, her bright brown eyes bright against her, her yellow face, 
and groom her breast or wing feathers with her beak, tidying. At those moments, he felt they were existing together, not the same, but side by side. He liked to look at her and waited to get up until she'd flown away. There's a lot to unpack with this idea of not being the same, but understanding that you live side by side, your existence is interconnected. Could you say a bit about what that means to you and to the novel? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, I used to be as a young person, really bored by birds. And now I've just, <laughs> I've just recently, even though I liked, you know, I, I, I liked cuddly mammals and stuff. Um, but I never really thought about birds. And in recent years, I have just begun to love them and the way that Gil does in, in this um, in this novel where he's, you know, I was an urban person growing up and he's an, he's an urban person growing up. And, and then you get to the desert and which is, the desert is a place that not only has a lot of birds, but, but where you can see the birds, right? Because you don't have this, this dense canopy and, and you have a big sky and you're just, you're really able to see birds in a way that you're not in more forested um, or or even urban places right so uh and the more you see them the more you love them and i really have come to believe that there's something about not knowing everything about not understanding everything about other creatures that that makes them precious and important to really the soul of the human you know that we really need to be in a world where we don't know everything uh, about other beings where we don't, where there's still like this, the mystery really of the unknown, the romance of, of the unknown. And I, I don't know who we would be without those other subjectivities around us all the time that, that we can't necessarily hope to fathom. But, but who, ideally, we can still manage to see as individuals and as, as, um, as, as the living, you know, as, um, as other points of view, as other sort of hosts for, for perception and understanding and emotion and all the things that other animals are. I have come come to a similar uh, point of view about birds by just the, the the fact of living very close to Cornell's lab of ornithology. Oh, that's great. I'm obsessed with their Merlin app. I love yeah, it. it's great, isn't it? Wonderful. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, and they are they do all kinds of amazing things that that get people to do exactly what you say, which is to to kind of understand that interdependence and to pay more attention when everything else calls us to not pay attention. And so I, it's, it's been a real gift. And I, I was reminded of that gift many times reading dinosaurs. Yeah. And, you know, I don't really, in, in the book, I don't really use the sort of the language of ornithologists or of real birders when, when Gil, you know, when Gil is looking at birds, he doesn't really use birders language because he's new to all this. And so he doesn't have really that lexicon. Like he, he would talk about, you know, I think in the passage you read something about, um, you know, grooming or something rather than preening, you know, he doesn't really use the language of bird people. But I think that's, that's important too, because we should always get to use our own intuitive or instinctive language for things and not be bullied into thinking that we need to use expert language you know mm. i i think that's that's really good advice <laughs> i i won't pretend 
I won't pretend that either of us understand precisely what it means to be good. Um, but in Gill's case, he explores several practical and philosophical avenues toward what me might be called goodness. He is an extra father for Tom, the boy next door. He volunteers his time at a shelter for abused women, gives money in an increasingly meaningful pace, including to those who might be judged by others as unworthy. And he commits to friendship at all cost. Do you think of your protagonist as capable of being truly good? Well, that is a good question. I mean, just like what good even means, as you say, it's hard for mm. us to say. I think, I mean, I think, I think the best formulation I can come up with about goodness is, is, is really going to come off sort of pedestrian and cliche but really has to do with just is there any other kind <laughs> yeah yeah i just don't yeah but i think it, it mainly has to do with not only living for the self you know and living for a larger group than just the self or even just like a larger group than than immediate family you know so, so living beyond your own living projecting yourself into the into the world of others and being able to see being able to have a sense of scale about yourself in the world where you are not a looming figure that towers over the landscape uh so i, th I think that's and in in this story gill is is i think has like an instinctive understanding of himself that's sort of self-deprecating but he also he doesn't know how to be more than a face in the crowd he doesn't really know how to how to do something that he himself will have respect for mm, yeah and he's as he's sampling these various things I, I think he understands them as as good um and perhaps in the in the pedestrian way but once something to signal that it's enough, I think. And that's to me where you have this sort of interweaving of, are we also sacrificing for the planet that's dying in front of us? And that's where, you know, Gil thinking about saving the birds or wondering what it means to, you know, have all this, this view of nature seems to kind of creep into the question of good enough. Did, did you feel like that was, those were intertwined for you? Yeah. And I, and I also think, um, he, he tries to, he is trying to be locally useful, you know, and the, he's trying to be locally useful, but he also suspects that his usefulness should extend beyond his friends and the this family that he's sort of adopted um, as his own or who has adopted him is probably a better way of saying it because he's sort of initially quite passive. But, um, but yeah, I think he's, and I think that that is a position that many of us are put in now just because there's, because of this, overload of stimuli and, and information that originates far beyond our neighborhoods and even our cities that it's some of some of whose events are so far away we don't we don't feel we can touch them they're sort of abstract for us but there's also there's just this constant barrage and we you know i think we we suffer from that from 
this kind of induced passivity or something that all that information is, I don't know, arousing in us. In other words, like we, we have a really kind of desperate longing to be able to affect or interact with, engage with them on some level that that panorama that is beyond us because it seems so urgent now on so many fronts, but it's often nearly impossible to know how we can do so. Hmm. The incredible bird on the front cover of Dinosaurs is at least a nod to the phenopepla. Am I saying that right? You know, that's a good question. I think it's, I've always heard phenopepla, even though it's spelled phenopepla. I think I was told that this is some kind of version of a flycatcher, but it's not, it's not literal really. Um, But maybe, you know, you could add a stretch because it does have a kind of crested look, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's uh, it's a bird that becomes fascinating to, to Gill and becomes meaningful beyond just their interaction. It's a bird specially adapted to live off the mistletoe tree. The two are in a symbiotic relationship and one would not survive without the other. I found this weighty on two fronts the need for humans to have a different, more mutual relationship with nature and the planet, but also Gill's profound loneliness, leading him to understand that he is interconnected with all of those around him, should he choose to see it. Would you talk a little bit more about how this bird in particular was resonant for you? Yeah, so I've been watching these birds for some 20 years um, from my house because they, like all the birds in this book, almost all the birds in this book appear in my garden many year round. And this one black one called the phenopepla that has this funny little sort of crest. Um, well, actually, the females aren't aren't black, but the males are black and they, they jump around. They actually, they're really into mistletoe bushes, which is like, the, this is basically a parasite on trees. All the desert trees around here um, have mistletoe on them and the mistletoe only is able to live because it's propagated by phenopeplas, which specifically eat the little red berries and then defecate and they, they grow new sort of on branches and stuff. And the new mistletoe grows out of that. But people have always also ripped the mistletoe out of, you know, the mesquites and Palaberdi and ironwood where it grows here because they don't want it to hurt the trees and see it as more of a parasite than a symbiont, you know? Mm. But really, you know, the, the trees, the, the mistletoe really needs the phenopeplos. And that's just, as far as I know, almost the only thing they eat. So they really need the mistletoe. Yeah, they are. Uh, I, I did not know about them before and they're fascinating. And I felt like what a great call for Gil. Uh, it's it's a callback to his instinct that he has relationships with, well, obviously this family, but with others that are, that are mutually meaningful, um, but also a way of thinking about, you know, a bird that has adapted to kind of live very, a, a limit in a limited way, whereas Gil, by virtue of his, his wealth could you know, live in any ornated way that he like. He thinks mm. of these birds perhaps as 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 having adapted to kind of really limiting down what their impact is in in the world. Yeah, I like that. I like that um, that articulation of it a lot. He he also kind of thinks of himself as parasitical and, hmm. and in, 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 in a sort of in a sort of negative way, and um, and watching the these particular birds changes a little bit his his affect um, around his role. 
as a perhaps as a parasite or or perhaps not. Before I let you go, I, I'm dying to know what you've been reading and loving recently. What should be our next favorite books? Okay, so I have to say that my answer to this is is nonfiction. It's, it's two nonfiction books that I've been reading. One of them is just out next week, and uh, they're both by the same author, who is this guy named Dan Flores, and he wrote this great book a few years ago called American Serengeti, which is about the way that we destroyed all the creatures of the Great Plains. Um, you know, in market hunting and, and other, you know, mm. other, and in other ways, but mostly that. And it's, is that so, where um, Teddy Roosevelt was shooting sure. everything dead? Is that absolutely, where... okay. absolutely. Yeah. So it's a great sort of work of human natural history. And then his new book that comes out on the 25th, um, which I just happened to, we had the same publisher and I'm not, I'm not paid to, to advertise by the way, for this book. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I was given a, a galley of it and it's just amazing. It's great. It's called wild new world. And it's about the whole sort of larger history of, of the entire American venture with regard to the wild. And um, it's just, it's just brilliant. And it, and it has so much in it. I mean, it's written like a novel, you know, it's never boring uh, because I can be easily bored by certain kinds of nonfiction that sure, seem dry yeah. to me or yeah. And this is just, it's just a great story and it's incredibly heartbreaking and also at moments, um, you know, inspiring. I, I'm really excited to know Dan Flores. I don't, I don't know his work and these sound both fascinating, but also necessary. And so I'm, I'm grateful for them and I'll make sure that we, we link to them on the website. Lydia Millett, thank you so much for talking to me about your latest, which is a really tremendous novel, Dinosaurs. And I can't wait for my listeners to run out and grab a copy. Thank you so much for having me on. This was really fun. Thank you. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Lydia Millett for a wonderful conversation about her most recent novel, Dinosaurs. You can find a link to purchase Dinosaurs and all Lydia's book recommendations at our website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes and recommended books. Be on the lookout for amazing interviews with Lynn Steger-Strong and Kevin Wilson. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.